there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Remember that old joke? That guy's not stupid, he's got two brains. Yeah, one's lost and the other one's out looking for it. Whether you remember that old joke or not, our condition is somewhat worse. We have seven minds working through seven centers that are controlling the physical body. We think that we have one mind and that it's controlling our life. We think that we're in control of our one mind. We think we're thinking our thoughts until a song gets stuck in our head and we can't make it get out. And we say, whoa, I've got this song stuck in my head. I can't get rid of it. Does this sound familiar? Well, if you're in control of your mind, then how could you possibly have a song stuck in your head that you couldn't get rid of? Okay, well, I'm not that in control of my mind. I mean, I'm not in control of my mind right now. So you're out of your mind right now. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. This whole thing about the mind is an illusion. We think that we know and we don't. But again, we don't know that we don't know until we find out that we don't know. And as long as we imagine that we do know, we never look to see if we don't know. It's just like your car keys. You don't look for your car keys until you lose your car keys. Then you look for your car keys. When do you stop looking for your car keys? When you think you found them. But how many times have you found a key and it wasn't the key you were looking for? Not enough, obviously, to make us aware of the fact that we don't know. And this work is to make us aware of the very real fact that we do not know, that we think we know, but we do not know. We think we know ourselves. We think we know our minds. We think we know our bodies. We think we know how we operate until something shows us beyond the shadow of a doubt that we do not know. And then we think, something's wrong. I don't know. But we only think that until we can imagine that we know again. And as soon as we imagine that we know again, we go right back to sleep imagining that we know. And we won't wake up again until something shocks us into the realization that we don't actually know. First, we have five ordinary minds acting through the intellectual, emotional, sex, moving, and instinctive centers. Intellectual, one. Emotional, two. Sex, three. Why can't sex be one? Well, in some of you, it is. (laughs) Sex is number one, and intellect is number five. In some of you, emotion is number one. Sex is number two, and intellect is number four, and something else. Instinct is number whatever. Well, we have the instinctive center. We have the moving center. We have the sex center, and all those three act together and are grouped somewhat together. The instinctive center, the moving center, and the sex center are all on the bottom story of this three-story house. So that's three rooms on the bottom story of this three-story house. Then you have the emotional center, which is the next story. Then you have the intellectual center, which is the next story. So these are the five regular minds that we have operating through, functioning through what the work calls centers. What is a center? It's an imaginary room in this imaginary house. Don't try and find these centers in your body. Don't look down there to see if you can find the first story of this three-story house. Don't saw yourself up into three parts and then divide that into different parts. Don't bother doing that. This is all for the intellect to try and grasp ideas that are beyond it. Ideas that are really for the emotional center, but the emotional center cannot handle now because it's so cluttered, dirty, and confused because of all the negative emotions that are operating in it. Then we have two super minds 
acting through higher emotional and higher intellectual centers. And those two minds speak a language the other five don't understand. Needless to say, the superminds have access to influences, information, forces, food, and wonderful things that we would really benefit by. But they speak a foreign language and we don't know what they're talking about. They're waving their hands and they're making gestures and they're showing us things. And we haven't a clue what they're saying. This is why so much esoteric literature seems so strange and meaningless to us if it's taken literally. Because it comes from these two higher minds, these two super minds. And it's in a language that we don't understand. So you read something like, let's take a piece of literature that most of you are familiar with, most of you in this room anyway, the Bible. Take Genesis. God made the earth in seven days and he did this and he did that and it doesn't make sense. If you take it literally, it doesn't make sense. Yet, yet you have people who keep going around saying, no, it's literal. God literally, it's, the earth is only this old. And what about all this carbon dating is all a bunch of baloney. That's all scientific lies. It's really the way, exactly the way the Bible says it is. Literally, word for word, it means exactly what it says. It means we all came from two people and those two people came from one person. And that one person was, came from the earth and was made by God. And then, and then God took a rib out of that one person and he made a whole other person out of that rib. That was woman. And so those two then had babies and they had two babies at first and then one baby grew up and killed the other baby who grew up and then they had only one baby left so then that one baby that they had left was sent away and he went and married somebody else where'd that somebody else come from oh shut up (laughs) and so then they had another baby you know and and then that baby went and married somebody else. And who did he marry? Well, I don't know. Shut up. You know, so, we, you, so this is the literal. See, literally, you have a lot of shut ups because literally it just doesn't make sense. But people insist on taking it literally. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that if you ask these questions, you're going to get told to shut up a lot. You're going to get told a lot of strange things. You're going to get told you don't have faith. You need to believe. You're going to get told a lot of things. And in this work, you're going to be told, don't believe. Verify. Think it through. Test it out. Find out for yourself. And then later you'll be told to believe. But it'll be a different quality of faith that's required. So this is why so much esoteric literature doesn't make sense if it's taken literally. Because it wasn't meant to be taken literally. It was meant to be taken in the language that it was given in. And the language that is given in is a language that, as I said, we don't understand. But that doesn't mean no one understands it, and that doesn't mean we can't learn it. I was talking to a friend the other day, and I told him that I learned Spanish. What was I? Does anybody remember when I went down there the first time? 93? So I was in my late 40s, very late 40s. <laughs> I was in my late 40s when I started to learn Spanish. And uh, he said, oh, that's impossible to learn a language at that age. Well, obviously, it's not impossible. What he meant is it's very difficult. And he was right. It was very difficult because there's a portion of your brain that checks out at around 17 years old that learns languages. And so if you're learning a language before 17, it's pretty easy because that part of your brain is flexible and active. But afterwards, it gets harder and harder and harder the further you move away from that magic number of 17. Now, is it really 17? I don't know. It might be 13 for some people or 25 for other people. I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. If you want to take everything that I say literally, then you're going to hear a lot of shut up. (laughs) Just shut up, will you? So unless we understand 
that we're controlled by different minds. We'll understand nothing meaningful about ourselves. When we understand nothing meaningful about ourselves, it leaves us to imagination. It leaves us to imagine things about ourselves. And as most of you know, the people in your life imagine a lot of things about themselves that are not true. Think about it. Your husband or your wife, they imagine that they're this or that, and you know they're not. But of course, remember that you have a husband or wife and they're looking at you and thinking the same thing, but you don't know that. Or you may know it, yeah, but you're basically saying shut up. This work is a specific system of self-observation aimed at bringing the light of consciousness to our internal darkness. Well, what is our internal darkness? Our internal darkness is that stuff that other people know about us that we don't know about us. That's our internal darkness. The things that we can't see about ourselves that other people see clearly. Admittedly, it takes a huge step to admit that other people are actually seeing what's there. We spend most of our lives contradicting them, saying, well, it's not there. You just don't like me. Well, it's not there. You're in love with me and you're just imagining that it's there. Does this sound familiar? Of course, it sounds familiar to you. I've probably been saying this for 20 years. You've been hearing it for 20 years, so it sounds familiar. Yeah, it's the same thing you talked about last week. You got anything new? Yes, I have something new. You want something new? You're asleep. That's new every moment, and it should be new every moment. Every moment, we need to realize that we're asleep and we need to wake up. But I'm not as asleep as I was. That's right, but you're still asleep. Well, how asleep are you? Well, hopefully less asleep than you were, and hopefully not as awake as you will be. Hopefully, if we continue to work. And this system, specific system, gives a certain way to do this in the same way that you might give directions from how to get here to how to get to another part of town. You take this street and that street. There's not just one way to get to that part of town from here. Because there are a lot of different streets. So there are a lot of different ways you can go to get there. What you want to do is take into consideration what you're working with. You're going to be walking. Do you want the scenic route? Do you want the direct route? Are you going to be flying an airplane? Are you going to be driving a car? How do you do with hills? Things like that. We'll all determine the best route for you to get there. This system is how to determine the best route for you to get to the destination. It's a very involved system and it works. We're told what to observe in ourselves and from what to separate. This isn't something we can figure out on our own from our acquired system. It's got to come from a bird's eye view. You know, satellite imaging is great. They can now check maps. They can now say, well, this feature has changed. The earth has changed here. It's not that way anymore. It's different. And they have pictures of it. And they can map it out differently. So things are a lot more precise than they used to be. This work is very precise because it has this bird's eye view, this satellite imaging kind of thing that comes from higher states of consciousness, superminds that we don't understand the language of, that has to be stepped down for us. And so when it's stepped down and translated, we may not get the exact meaning, but at least we get an idea of what it is saying. Just like any translation isn't exact. One of the things I learned in learning a foreign language was, at first, I began to translate that language into my language. But there came a time when I stopped translating, when I just knew when someone spoke that language what it meant in that language. Translation was no longer necessary. That's not entirely true because some things I still have to translate. Some very complex words or ideas I still have to translate. But the basic things, if I read poetry in Spanish, it's easier for me to understand it in Spanish than it is in English. And it's also much more beautiful, has much more meaning in Spanish. Someone sent me a poem by Jose Marti the other day about a white rose. I won't be able to tell you the poem in English, but in Spanish I could, because it's the impression, the feeling, the idea is there, but it's in Spanish. It's not in English. 
So I would have to think it through to tell you in English what I feel and sense in Spanish. It's like I was thinking about modismos, which is an idiom. Modismos are idioms like, okay, well, drop in sometime. George Lamza, who was Bible translator, and I studied with him back in the late 60s, he spoke all kinds of languages. But his native tongue was Aramaic, which, is all, which was almost a dead language, except for a few tribes traveling in Turkey and you know, different areas. Who This was a long time ago. He was born at the turn of the century, not this one, but the one before. And he lived in a tribe of like Bedouins who traveled around with sheep and they just moved around. They had no home. They had tents. And this was the language that he spoke and he had no last name. His name was Lamsa, the tribe of Meshibo. And for us, it was all like, what? We, we just couldn't really understand that. And when he came to America, he was standing in, in line in the Ellis, at Ellis Island and, and he listening to everybody and they, they need two names and he's only got one. His name is Lamsa. So he, need, he knows he needs another name. When he gets there, well, the guy ahead of him had a bunch of names, but the, uh, they only wanted two. So they took his two names. So Lamsa figured, well, he had an extra name. He'd take that guy's name. So he took the name George, George Lamsa. And this is the story that he tells, which is, you know, when you think about it, it's fascinating and you don't hear stories like this anymore because people aren't coming in through Ellis Island anymore. It's not that way anymore. Finally, he made his name George M. Lamza. George, the name that he borrowed from the guy who was in front of him in line at Ellis Island who didn't need all of his names. So he took that name, Lamza, which was his actual name, and he knew himself by. And then M stood for Mashibo, the tribe, George Mashibo Lamza. It's a great story. A great guy. When he first came here, he, went, he was in New York, obviously, and he was working somewhere, and someone he worked with invited him over for dinner. Well, drop in, he said. Lamza goes to the guy's house, finds the address, and he's looking all around for stairs to get up so he could drop in. And there were no stairs, so he went home. So all the guy at work the next day, the guy said, what happened? You didn't come for dinner last night. He said, yes, I did come. He said, well, why didn't you come in? Why didn't you? He said, well, I couldn't find the place to drop in. Because in the east, they actually have holes in the roof, and you can drop into a house. You can come down through a ladder. In the east, that area, they actually climb up on the roof at night to get out of the hot house and to get the cool evening air and to sit and look at the stars. So they have holes in the roofs. They have ladders that they climb up to. So he didn't know. He thought he was going to... And then he, he started to make a list of all of these idioms. Keep your eyes peeled. Keep an eye out for me. When, see, when we hear these things, we know what they mean and we take it for granted. But when someone who speaks a foreign language is learning our language and they hear, drop in or keep an eye out for me or keep your eyes peeled, or you can probably think of other ones. And one of the things about, that, I, that I loved about Spanish was learning the modismos, the idioms, these phrases, pelo de gato, which is literally hair of the cat. It's an idiom for very light rain, sprinkle, uh, misting kind of light rain. Pelo de gato. No necesita una abuela. He doesn't need a grandmother. Well, what does that mean? He doesn't need a grandmother. What? He's already got two. He doesn't need a grandmother. It means he blows his own horn. He brags about himself. He doesn't need a grandmother to brag about him. Now, see, in the Latin culture, that makes so much sense. In our culture, it doesn't make that much sense because grandmothers don't necessarily brag about their grandchildren. At least my grandmother never really bragged about me, neither one of them, as far as I could tell. One just whacked me every once in a while, and the other one kind of ignored me. My grandfathers, on the other hand, were a little different, but I don't remember either one of them ever bragging about me. But in Latin cultures, family is a totally different thing. And so that makes perfect sense. I made it a, a habit because of my curiosity of finding these things out and 
learning about them, remembering them, because you can understand a people so much better, so much more deeply. You can understand a people and their history and their roots by understanding their idioms and how they say things and why they say things like that. More of the heart of a person comes through. So it was important for me to learn those things. How I ever got off on that, I don't know. I had an email that put it this way. When we're told about what to observe in ourselves, from what to separate, this isn't something that we can figure out on our own from our acquired system. Oh, and that's how I got onto the modismos. It's like, it's a foreign language. We have to learn it. We have to be told from someone who knows it so that we can find the intricacies of it, the modismos, the idioms, the little sayings and phrases that don't mean anything if you take them literally, but that mean everything if you understand what it is that they're saying. So the email said, my problem is that I have no knowledge of who or what I am at a fundamental level. So everything I discover about myself is secondary to that and in accordance with rules of which I know nothing. I just showed up on this planet one day. Everything I know is related to this reality. Now, if you think about this, this is very profound. This man has been doing this work on his own for 15 years. So he reads it. And I think he was, in a, he was in a Gurdjieff group at one time, and that didn't pan out so well. So he left that and decided he did better on his own. And he may have or may not, I don't know. I don't know the, the conditions of that, and so I don't know. But we rarely ever do better on our own for long. I have no knowledge of who or what I am at a fundamental level. Well, at a fundamental level means at your core level, what you are actually fundamentally for. We know what we're for in relationship to this life we're born into. We know what we're for to other people. We know what we're for in that way. But at a fundamental level, at a primal level, we don't know because our reality is related to what we know here on this horizontal line and not what we don't know on this vertical line. What we will find out if we grab the rope that's hanging above us and pull ourselves up into another order of being, into a transformed state, into a transformed being. Then we will know what we do not know and cannot know now. But we can still receive messages from there. We can still learn the language. We can still start to get an idea of it. And that's what this work is about. Reaching this realization takes much time and effort. Reaching the next phase takes more of both, more time and more effort. Unless we can see our different minds, we'll continue to be our different minds. And of course, if we're being our different minds, then we will continue to be controlled by them without awareness. Why is it that someone else can look at us and tell us what state we're in when we don't know ourselves? Because we don't know ourselves. That's why. But we can know ourselves better. And this work is about helping us to learn who we are, what we're really like, to be able to accurately look at what it is we're manifesting and determine from that what center we're in or what mind we are in. Knowing what mind you're in is as important as our light podcast, knowing what state you're in, because they're very closely related. What state you're in, what mind you're in, are very closely related. The thinking mind doesn't see things the same way as the sex mind or the emotional mind. Fathers try and tell their their sons this. (laughs) They try and tell their sons, look, when your sex mind is working, your thinking mind is out to lunch. It's not working properly. Your sex mind overruns your thinking mind. So you have to know this in advance and you have to prepare not to listen to your sex mind in certain circumstances or else it's going to leave your thinking mind and the rest of you in trouble later for a whole lifetime. They have different ways of saying it, of course, but that's the general idea. 
The problem is the lower minds, the sex, the moving, and the instinctive minds, can combine to form a triad of active, passive, and neutralizing forces. You'll remember that the triad of active, passive, and neutralizing forces is how things manifest. So how is it that some 13-year-old gets pregnant? How does that happen? Well, if you ask Dr. House, there's really only one way it can happen. It happens because a triad has formed. And that triad doesn't have to have anything to do with the thinking or the emotional minds. It can be just the sex moving and instinctive. The sex drives it. The instinctive is right there with it and takes care of all of the fertilizing of the egg and all the stuff that goes into that. And the moving does it. And where's the thinking and the emotional? Well, who knows? Sleeping somewhere. There are probably the emotional is mom and the, and, the, and the thinking is dad. And the sex and the instinctive and the moving centers, those three kids are off playing when mom and dad are asleep or away or somewhere else. And so the girl gets pregnant, the boy gets her pregnant, and they both like, oh, now what are we going to do? Then they think of, then the thinking comes in and the feeling comes in. Oh, this is horrible. I feel awful. Oh, my God, it's the end of the world. What are we going to do? And they're represented by mom and dad. Does this sound familiar to you? Good, because it's happening all over the world today. This is an example of the lower minds, sex moving and instinctive, combining to form a triad without the other minds. From this, you may extrapolate and see how we get ourselves into the messes in which we so often find ourselves. You, in a house you can't pay for, you have a car you can't make the payments on. All of this is because these three minds got together and formed a triad and manifested something and signed your name to the contract, and you had nothing to do with it. Your intellect was out to lunch. Your emotions were out to lunch. They were on vacation or sleeping or whatever. Each of those minds may conduct any of the three forces. So the sex mind can conduct either the active, the passive, or the neutralizing force. The instinctive mind can conduct either the active, the passive, or the neutralizing force. And of course, the moving mind can conduct either the active, the passive, or the neutralizing force. So you see, this gives us many combinations of real trouble. And this is how we get into real trouble in life. Each mind has its own sphere of activity. When you're in one mind, you're not necessarily in another mind as well. Now, the three lower minds, sex, moving, and instinctive, can form a union without us, without our having to do anything about it. They can just form a union, which is kind of unfair in one way, except that there would be no life on this planet if it wasn't that way. We would not procreate. There would be no animals. There would be nothing because it all has to be instinctive. It all has to be at that level because that's how we progress on that line, on the animal line. But above that, there's no need for those minds to be involved in that. So each mind has its own sphere of activity. Decisions made in one mind have no power in another mind. You know this. In one mind, your emotional mind, you look in the mirror, you see that you've turned into a fat slob and you emotionally go on a diet. <laughs> This is horrible. I'm, that's it. I'm never going to eat again. That's obviously the emotional mind. And what happens? It means nothing. When the instinctive mind says, we're hungry, the emotional mind has no power. The instinctive mind knows nothing about what the emotional mind decided. And it cares nothing about what the emotional mind decided. The emotional mind has no power of the instinctive mind in that area. You see how that works? Intellectually, you may look at yourself and say, okay, well, the doctor says that I really need to lose weight or else I'm going to and stop eating this or else I'm going to have heart disease and this is a problem and that's a problem. My cholesterol is too high, so I've got to cut down on this and stop that. And, and intellectually, you understand all of this and you make the decision that that's the way it's going to be and you get out and you feel like eating this and you know intellectually that you 
shouldn't, but it has no power to stop you. That's why diets don't work. A way of life works. A diet doesn't work. If you're willing to make a diet a way of life, it'll work. If you're not, it won't. Ordinary man spends his life in vague, unfocused states, subject to a stream of endless inner jabbering and fantasy. This is where we live. We live by the river. We've got our little shack here by the river, and we can sit there all day and watch things go by, float by on the river. Have you ever read Mark Twain's books, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, all about life on the river? It makes sense when you look at it to think, here's these boys who have their life all about this river. And that's the way we are. Our life's all about the river, whatever passes down the river, whatever might be down the river or up the river, whatever's in the river and how deep the river is and if the river's flood or if the river's low, if, if the river's muddy or if the river's clear. All of this, who's coming down the river, who's stopped on the river, it's all about the river. And for us, it's the same way because we have no attention to speak of. We have no will to speak of. We can't really stop the river or change the flow of the river or make the river this or that or make anything come down the river or go up the river or stop on the river. All we can do is watch it and imagine that we're part of it. And this is the endless inner jabbering and fantasy as the river goes by. We see this and we see that. And oh, look at this. And oh, look at that. And oh, I wonder where that's going. And then the two boys sit there and they make up all these fantastic stories about where that riverboat's going down the river and who's on it and what they're doing and so on and so forth. And that's us. The work calls this being between two centers or minds. Two minds. Remember, one's lost and the other one's out looking for it. It must be told where to look. If the mind that's out looking for the lost mind is going to find it, it's going to have to be told where to look or else its chances of finding it are very slim. It could find it. Do you really want your life to be about those kind of odds? If I look for 50 or 100 or 2,000 years, I could find it. Or would you rather take the direction from the bird's eye view and say, it's over here, go look over there. Here's what you're looking for. Go look over there. And even that makes it difficult. Have you ever had someone direct you to an arrow? You shoot an arrow and then someone directs you. No, it's further. No, it's back a little. Oh, to your left, to your right. And how difficult it is to find it. But the other person sees it and they're directing you, but you can't see it. So you have to go and find it according to their direction. And this is what this work is like. Someone else sees where the arrow has landed. Someone else sees what you have to look for. And they're telling you how to get there. And it's not easy even with the directions. That's why this work isn't that easy. Not because the directions are faulty, but because we're so lost. We're so unaware. We're so in the dark. And of course, the something else that's giving us directions is the higher influences of conscious man, greater mind, kingdom of heaven, whatever you choose to call it. I don't care. Whatever you're comfortable with. doesn't matter to me. I just want you to get it. Put it in any frame of reference that works for you. It's okay with me. I don't have any rules about that. When we are in attention, we're in a mind operating through a center. Our attention span is woeful, and we don't know it until we see the reality of that. The reality of that for most of you has been meditation. Sitting down for an hour and not letting your mind absolutely run wild with you or not letting yourself daydream or whatever has given you an idea of just how unruly your mind actually is and how little control you have over it. It does what it wants and you don't count at all. It doesn't even ask by your leave, sir, ma'am, nothing. It just does whatever it wants. And you're dragged along, usually willingly, definitely asleep. But this work says that when we are in attention, we're actually in a mind, in a center. 
Our attention span being so woeful means that we can't be in attention very long because we run out of force. Curtis and I talked about this the other day. He had a throbbing tooth and he didn't get to sleep. And he said, I tried meditation to deal with the pain. And he said, it worked for a little while. I said, yeah, but it didn't work. He said, no, it worked. I said, oh, then you got a good night's sleep. Well, no, it worked for a little while. I said, then it didn't work. Right, then it didn't work. He didn't like admitting it didn't work because it did work, but it didn't work. You see, we'd like it either or. And the truth is, is that it did work because it always works until you run out of force. When you run out of force, it stops working. Why? Because you can't work anymore. You don't have the force. It's just like running out of gas in your car. Well, my car doesn't work. Well, sure it works. You just had to put gas in it. Well, I don't have any gas. Well, then your car doesn't work. But as soon as you do put gas in it, you find gas and you put gas in it, it'll work again. So the car actually works, just doesn't have any gas. So the problem is the meditation works. He just doesn't have enough practice with it, doesn't have enough force behind it to make it work for longer. But for all of us, there's a point where it stops working because we ran out of fuel. We ran out of force. We didn't have any left. This is why we continually need to develop, to practice. No matter where you are, there's more. No matter where you are, there's more. Until you get to man number seven, and then I don't know what that's like. Maybe there's more after that, and it's just another order of being. We don't know. I don't know. Maybe someone knows, but I don't know. And I'm sure there are lots of people who line up and tell you they know all about it. I don't believe them. I believe very few people who sell blue sky, who know all about it. I believe very few, because I've met too many who just said they knew, and it was all imagination. One center doesn't know another because they have different minds with different ways of doing things. We seek to develop a state of being where we can stand in the midst of the different centers and speak to their different minds and be understood. So when the moving mind speaks to the instinctive mind, the instinctive mind understands. And when the instinctive mind speaks to the moving mind, the moving mind understands. And when the intellectual mind speaks to the emotional mind, the emotional mind understands. And when the emotional mind speaks to the intellectual mind, the intellectual mind understands. Wow, that'd be cool. That'd be a balanced man who could understand all the languages, who is fluent in all of them and could communicate with all of the centers all the minds, who knew what each one needed, who knew, who, who knew what each one was hungry for, and then could give it. This work talks about this story about the three bosses. There's this business, and there are three bosses in the business, and they're each in their separate office, and they don't know about each other. So there's the CEO and the CFO and the COO. The CEO is the chief executive officer. The CFO is the chief financial officer. And COO is the chief operations officer. Is that right? Operation what? Operational. Operational officer. Okay. So you have these three bosses, who run this business, but they don't know about each other. They're not connected to each other. They're each in their separate office. And they have one secretary. They share one secretary. But this secretary is in a separate, little separate office, little separate office, only has three books, Gourmet Magazine, Playboy Magazine, and uh, Sports Illustrated. And those are the three books that, obviously, one is the sex center, one is the instinctive center, one is the moving center. I mean, I'm just making this up as I go along. So I'm trying to make it interesting and trying to make an impression on you and I hope it does it and I hope you smile and I hope you listen and I hope you get this because it's important to understand this. But the secretary, as you can tell by the secretary's reading material, is not very bright. He's, he's not a very bright person and he spends most of his time looking at Playboy and the Sports Illustrated swimming suit issue, imagining how he could mix the food with the, the images from the other two magazines that he's looking at. That's his level of awareness and level of intelligence. So the secretary, because he's into these other things, sends all of the incoming messages to whichever boss he feels like sending it to at the moment without noticing to whom it's addressed, what kind of message it is, what it's for. The result is the bosses can't figure out what's going on. They don't know heads from tails. And not knowing the other bosses, they can't pass it along to the proper center or mind. So you can see that the three bosses are three minds. 
three centers, and that the secretary is whatever it is in us, this low level of awareness, that is passing along the information, the impressions that are coming into us, deciding where they should go, and is sending them willy-nilly wherever it feels like sending them at the moment. So in this moment, it's feeling, you know, it's feeling hungry, so it sends it to this center. And in this moment, it's feeling like, you know, it has an urge for sex, so it sends it to this center. And in this moment, it has an urge for moving around, so it sends it to this center. In this moment, it feels like thinking about this, so it sends it to this center. And it doesn't matter where the impression belongs, where it should be filed, where it should go, where it can do the most good. It just sends it wherever it feels like sending it. This work teaches us how to first see our condition, first see you have different minds that tend to work as opposites. It's why you do so little of what you want to do. When you think about life, it's a compromise. Your life is a compromise. You don't have what you want. You have what you settled for. Now, you can go to seminars and they'll tell you how to get what you want. And what you'll end up with is what you settle for. Because no seminar can give you what you have to have to get what you want. You have to have will. You have to have understanding. And that just doesn't come from a seminar. It comes from hard, directed, right effort and a long time working on yourself. And a lot of right knowledge and light coming into you over a long period of time. It just doesn't happen in 72 hours or in two weekends, or in one weekend, or in eight hours. Sorry, I'm not saying that those things are not beneficial. What I'm saying is, ultimately, they cannot work. The only thing that can work is you. Say it with me. I can work. I can work. That's right. You can work. So if you're going to go pay somebody else and they're going to do the work for you, that's not it. It's not going to work. Sorry for all those guys who are making a fortune off the marks who go to the pay for those seminars, but they're getting what they pay for. They're getting the illusion that someone else is doing it for them. They're getting the illusion that they're making progress. And they do make progress for about 72 hours, and then it begins to diminish until they find themselves back where they were, maybe a little bit further along, depending on how much real work they actually did there. Kine and I went to dinner the other night. It was her birthday, and I took her to dinner. And we play this game, where do you want to eat? It's the where do you want to eat game. I say, it's your birthday, where do you want to eat? The way our game goes is, I don't know. Where can we get something that you'll eat? Well, it's your birthday. I'll find something. Don't worry about me. Well, we could go here except that they don't have anything for vegetarians. Don't worry about me. This is your birthday. Let's go where you want to go. Do you want to go to a place where they only have steaks? Fine. Then I'll find something to eat. If it's salad, if it's breadsticks, I'll find something to eat. Don't worry about it. It's your birthday. Let's do what you want. Well, I don't know of any place. I never get out. And I, well, if only they had restaurants where you bought shoes, then you would know where all of them. Then you know where, where all the good places to eat were. So we go through this thing back and forth. And and finally, I I say okay. I, I what I do is I drive around. This is how I handle this. I drive around and I make suggestions. Would you like Chinese, Italian, Thai food, Japanese food? And so I make all the, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if there's any place good. And she goes through that. And so I finally say, okay, well, how about this? And then she perks up, oh, yeah, oh, that sounds good. Okay, so then I don't ask another question. I drive right there. I go there and we go in and, you know, and then we go to the ordering thing. I know she will order her entree. So, I wait, and she orders the entree, and I order everything else. So, so she's going to drink anything, I order that, and I give her a choice. Would you like this or that? Then I order the, the appetizer, and I don't give her any choice because it's, I'm going to eat it too, so it's going to be what I want to eat and what she will eat. But she has her entree, and she has a choice of whatever drink. I give her a choice of the drink. You can have this kind of wine or that kind of wine. So would you like the Merlot or the, Zinfand, the white Zinfandel? That's her choice. And everything's fine that way. She has a wonderful time. But you see, the thing is, is that for years, now we've been married 26 years, and for years, it's not the way it worked. 
for years it worked like I got upset because she didn't know where she wanted to eat and she was being difficult and why can't you just say what you want and blah, 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 blah. I went through all that. And now this time I just said, oh, okay, fine. Well, let's, you know, I'll drive around. And I had a certain idea of how long I'd drive around making suggestions. And then I'd just go somewhere, park, we'd go in and we'd eat and then she'd have a great time. But you see, her idea of a great time is her idea of a great time. My idea of a great time is different because we come from different minds. We're different people. And what I realized is that I was trying to make my idea of a great time her idea of a great time. And she was trying to make her idea of a great time my idea of a great time. Whereas if we would just have our own idea of a great time and do that and let the other person make whatever they can make of it. After all, that's what life is, isn't it? That's what it all boils down to eventually. So that's the where do you want to eat game. Each center has its own hunger. Instinctive center has a yen for sex. The moving center hungers to make something, to exercise. The emotional center wants to be appreciated. The intellectual center burns to know. So you see that each mind has something that it's hungry for. You can see that the intellectual mind is not interested in eating what's on the emotional mind's menu. And the instinctive mind is not interested in eating what's on the intellectual mind's menu. It just doesn't care for that stuff. Balanced man sees and understands the different hungers, seeing that no one dominates the other to the exclusion of the other. So a balanced man makes sure that each mind gets what it needs without starving the others, without making this mind sick by giving it too much, making this center sick by giving it too much, and the other one sick by not getting enough. So a balanced man basically stands in the middle of all the minds and he gives to each one according to its needs. It's like communism from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Great idea if you're a balanced man. Unfortunately, there aren't any balanced men, or there are very few balanced men on this planet, so communism has never worked. But in a society of balanced men, it would work perfectly. It's just that we're not in a society of balanced men. This work is about awakening, not continuing in human sleep, the human sleep in which it found us. And I say it found us because I don't think we found this work. I think it found us. I think it was up to us to find it, We'd still be looking. We'd still be wandering in the weeds, trying to hear the voice that was going to give us directions. If you think you're awake, if you think you're all right, if you think that you're better than others, you are out like a light. Observe yourself sincerely and you will know yourself. Know the truth and the truth will make you free. The only way that you are going to get out of this prison of no will, no attention, no direction, no balance is by learning to know yourself, by seeing what's actually there. This work is a valid way to show you yourself, to show you where to look, to show you how to look, to show you where to go next. And it does work. I've verified that for myself. It works. It's not for everybody, but it does work if you're willing to work it. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.